Welcome to Common Ground with Bill Walton, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics, and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Hi, I'm joined today by John Henry, Bruce Fine, and Bill Nitze. Uh, John is uh, founder of the uh, Citizens for the Republic, is an insurance executive, and is an author of a play that we want to talk today about the founding of our republic. Uh, Bruce Fine is also is a lawyer, and he's the author of American Empire Before the Fall. Uh, Bill Nitze is also a founder of the Citizens for Republic, uh, and he is a lawyer and uh, an expert in all things, uh, all things uh, constitutional, as is Bruce Fine. Uh, together, we are citizen actors. We're in a play with John Henry, is our author, uh, written called, uh, what is the name of our play, John? Uh, Republic for Which We Stand. Republic for Which We Stand, and uh, we all play parts in the play. Bruce is our James Madison. Uh, Bill Nitze plays George Mason and Edward II, and I have the opportunity, great honor, to play George Washington and also Roger Mortimer, who was one of the great lovers of the Middle Ages. So thank you for that, John. John, <laughs> tell, us, great, tell, us, tell us about our play, and then we're all going to talk a lot about the Republic and democracies and the Committee for the Republic holds monthly salons here in D.C., and, and I started the um, Stonehill Theatrical Foundation to dramatize some of the themes that we pursued in the, in the committee. And uh, our principal focus is on presidential wars now. We have nine going on now, unconstitutional, undeclared wars. And so the, the object of the play, Republic for Which We Stand, uh, was to dramatize this. And so uh, George Washington um, and the Virginia delegation went up to uh, Philadelphia a little early, and they were sitting around waiting for a quorum to form. And uh, the setting for the play is in Benjamin Franklin's home, where George has, uh, you, uh, George, has commissioned three plays, many plays, on uh, the real uh, great wars in English history, uh, William the Conqueror, uh, Edward III, and, and Henry V, the Crecy and Agincourt kings. And so the founders sit around and watch these many plays, these so what's called the at the time closet drama, and uh, comment on uh, that. And they make the decision to uh, make a break with history and to do something that had never been done before in history, uh, before a sense, which was to put the war power, uh, the most important power, uh, the decision to go to war, in the Congress rather than in the ex executive, where it, it, it's... It, so that today is a is the uh, is the issue that the committee is focused on, and and that's this play is going to be um, exploring that dramatically with your uh, with your great thespian talents, Bill. Ah, uh, we may be in trouble. Um, <laughs> we were talking before about George Washington really did commission plays, and he really did perform them at Valley Forge. Bill, was it you that were talking about that? Yes. Um, I was just fascinated when I read that at the one of the low points in the Revolutionary War, when uh, Washington's army was defeated, was being pursued, was going through a miserable freezing winter, his soldiers didn't have any boots, they were developing gangrene, a large number of them were deserting, 
Washington gathered together his officers and put together a performance of uh, Addison's play on Cato. And Cato, of course, is um, the famous Roman who, rather than submit to Caesar, took his own life in Utica. And uh, it was this example of Republican virtue in putting the Republic ahead of one's life that George Washington chose to display to his soldiers. So I've always found this very inspiring. But I would add that uh, what Cato didn't recognize and what I, James Madison, did is that uh, simply by taking his life, he wasn't really changing you know, the narrative of history. He just got another emperor. If it wasn't Caesar, it was Caesar Augustus. If it wasn't Caesar Augustus, it was Caligula. Uh, and that the lessons that the plays within the play teach is that simply changing the personalities is not sufficient if you are to safeguard against war. And the discussion of war is important, not simply because it's a constitutional infraction, it's because the framers understood uh, in times of war, the law is silent. What is the definition of war? It's legalized murder. It's turning wives into widows, children into orphans. It's migrating your genius from production to destruction. It's huge debts. So it isn't you know, a technical argument for international lawyers to debate. It has critical impact on everyone what role did uh, Madison, in the citizens. What role did Madison play in, this, uh, in the founding of the Republic? Well, he tell, tell was, us about he your was, character. He, he, he was instrumental. Uh, Madison, for months before the convention uh, uh, assembled in May of 1787, he had Thomas Jefferson, who was then a commissioner in France, gather up books on every single confederation in the history of mankind, and he shipped them over in chest. And Madison studied all of them in order to deduce what kind of universal uh, truths that he could find from history that would inform how he would propose uh, to refashion the United States from the Articles of Confederation that really wasn't a unifying document. It really kept the country with 13 separate sovereigns. And so he came up, he drafted the Virginia Plan. Now, it's credited uh, to, uh, to Randolph because Madison was a self-effacing personality, kind of the opposite of what you find in Washington. Everybody is egomaniacal here. You don't, you don't last Madison, long in Mad Washington Madison doing was self-effacing. Yeah. So, and he was the one yeah. also, Bill, that at the <clears> convention, <throat> he took notes and was the one who was the, the scrivener and why we know what debates were about the various provisions of the Constitution. And, and John, if you're, you're, the way this is written, uh, Madison is our hero. That's right. And yes, let me say a word uh, about the villain of this play. I was just coming to that. <laughs> Very <is> good. Alexander <laughs> Let's Hamilton. talk about the villain, yeah. And uh, in my early outings on behalf of the committee um, <laughs> in the inn at Little Washington and elsewhere, um, actually the courthouse at Little Washington, uh, I have played Hamilton, and there is an interesting relationship between Hamilton and Madison, which was not all opposition, because I think Madison accepted that in order for the United States to survive, it needed a federal government with certain powerful functions, including control over credit, the ability to uh, raise armies with congressional consent, 
Hamilton was not as strong on the balance of powers as perhaps we would like, and that comes out in the play. But there was an exception of our founders of the need for quite a strong central government. And based on my reading of history, they were right, because the United States at the beginning was in a very weak position. It had no credit. Uh, it had no functioning institutions and was susceptible to foreign power. Well, I think. Well, if I could interject, because I think this is critical, Bill. I apologize, though. That the the critical difference between Madison and and Hamilton wasn't over whether you needed a stronger central government. It was whether the powers that were to be dominant were to be the legislative power as opposed to the executive, and that's where Madison understood you give power to the executive. It's inevitable. He understood that George Washington was a prodigy. It'd take 500 years where you could get an executive who would turn down the opportunity to be a king, which is what Hamilton offered him. And that's the critical element that Madison understood and, and Hamilton didn't. And that early on appeared with regard to Hamilton's celebration of the Neutrality Proclamation, where he wanted the president to be able to make conduct a crime on his own. That's in the Neutrality Proclamation that Hamilton celebrated president making a crime on his own while getting to Congress? And that's really the key to the distinction is why how we evolved as a nation. If we began with an with a overwhelming executive, which we have now de facto, we would have been crumbled as an empire probably 100 years ago. Well, the Madisonian well, view prevailed well, for about well, a let century. Let me ask the man on the street question. Well, we've got, aren't we a democracy? And if we have a majority uh, Alexa, no. Alexa president, no, no, isn't, no. isn't, doesn't that doesn't that, isn't that the final word? No, the, that, that, author? Give, I, I, give, no. give our author a give little airtime here. <laughs> give him the Madison. Uh, yeah, this is okay. quoting right, from my quote. author. This, no, we're, we're not a democracy, and it's, it's not because there's an, any essential um, denigration of, of, of popular For the record, sentiment. I knew the answer to the question. Uh, but, I, but, <laughs> but this is, I think the critical element is that in a republic, which is what we have, the goal of government, of civil society, is justice, not simple majority rule, because uh, majorities can be as oppressive as oligarchies and kings. And so, as Madison points out with the playwright's uh, uh, assistance in, in, in offering the, wars, the, the words, we don't have simple majorities. We have built in nine or ten checks on simple majority rule. We have separate rules for electing the House and the Senate and the President. We have a bicameral legislature. We have super majorities for treaties and constitutional amendments and confirmation of presidential nominations. We have an independent Supreme Court that's empowered to invalidate all of the decisions of the, of the electoral branches of government. And in order, and, and the whole idea here was to require a broad consensus amongst different factions before the government could operate at all. Because the idea was, if we're checking government, what's, what's in a pejorative way said, oh, we've got gridlock. Gridlock means you and I are, we're, we have our liberty to chart our own destiny. We're, 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 we're for gridlock. We're for gridlock. Yeah, love and, it. And, and you should only be able to get yeah. out of gridlock if you have various consensus among the different factions of society. I, I might add that we've noticed that uh, uh, Bruce plays Madison in John's play, but he is Madison in real life. Right. <laughs> and I, suspect, I, I suspect you've read all the books that Madison read before he came to the conclusions he came to. Is that right? Yes, but I have. I, I, I read additional books that oh. he didn't have. Right? And that's in some sense. He's had more time, okay. more sense, data points. Yeah, yeah, in some sense, that's why his... If you read, Bill, 
his description of what would happen with the executive, given the war power, says war is the nurse of executive expansion and arrogance. And he, he describes about how war excites the vanity of the president to leave footprints yeah. in the sands of time, and he gets the authority to dispense favors and dispense money. I mean, it fits our mentality today like a glove. And he's writing 227 years ago. And he got it right. John, you want to weigh in? I mean, the author does get to say something about this. Oh, well, I think Bruce has done a, Madison is uh, Madison is Madison. And, uh, the, uh, the play is about uh, Madison, the conflict between Madison and, and Hamilton over what the uh, American Revolution meant, how to translate it into uh, a new form of government. Well, well as the author, uh, I mean, how do you make it interesting? Because you've got all these old guys, you know, 250, 230 years ago doing all this. How did you how do you make it entertaining? Why would somebody well, want to go watch Well, I think you have to do this? a number of things. And is it uh, all a bunch of men that are no, cast in no, this play? Uh, the, uh, no, women are the, very important. The, the women um, women uh, have half the uh, carry half the conversation. So uh, Martha Washington has as much to say as, as you do. I, uh, I've noticed that. She has better lines, too. <laughs> <laughs> More forceful ones. More forceful And Bill, who plays uh, George Mason, his, uh, his wife has uh, as many lines. And Sarah. And, and uh, uh, Bill is uh, uh, Bruce, who plays uh, uh, Madison. His, he has Dolly Madison to deal with. And so she's quite a quite a character she's yeah. she's full of things to say so so the women are carrying half the uh, uh the, the substance of the conversation over the war power so that that's a that that works in terms of um, getting um, attention and then the um <clears throat> we use a lot of humor um humor is very important because uh if you want to slip some instruction in you you better have people laughing yeah. so we we have them laughing a lot well i, I think I, I can attest to the humor i, I think uh uh, Bill playing Edward II is one of the yeah. more interesting and fun parts of the play. Uh, yes. What do you have? Any get your? Now, what is the, the line from South Pacific? You're just a what? You're what? just a king who can't say uh, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what is that? Oklahoma. Can you do that, Bill? Can, do can, that, yeah. No. Can you run that line? No. Can you do that one? <laughs> well, I'm just a king who can't say no. <laughs> I'm in a terrible fix. I always say, come on, let's go, when I ought to say Nick. <laughs> but They'd get you into trouble today with sexual harassment. You related yes. to Mr. Weinstein? I mean, I'm, That's true. I'm, but Bill, you play the, uh, um, you switch in from, from, you go in and you're part of the mini play uh, as Edward II, and we give you the uh, Richard II death scene. Which is, I think, one of my favorite um, passage in any of Shakespeare's plays. Do you? Could you do that for us? Well, all right. Um, <clears throat> for God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings. Some were betrayed, some slain in war, some poisoned by their wives, some haunted by ghosts they deposed, some sleeping killed, all murdered. For within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of a king keeps death his court. And there the antic sits, scoffing his state and grinning at his pomp, allowing him a breath, a little scene, to monarchize, be feared, and kill with looks. 
infusing him with self and vain conceit, as if this flesh which rounds our body were brass impregnate. And humored thus comes at the last, and with a little pin bores through his castle wall, and farewell, king. Now, this is a very eloquent passage, and I hope that certain brilliantly <laughs> rendered. Thank you. I think, I, I think, Bill, the, one, of the, one of the lessons that you can extrapolate from that eloquent recitation is that despite the fact that kings come and go and get killed, nothing changes as long as the institutional structure remains unchanged. So you just have a series of one king comes in, strong king, weak king, but the same evils, the same problems reoccur. But Bill and I both agree, we were talking about this beforehand, I mean, aren't our institutional structures rather frayed now? I mean, you look at the way Congress has abrogated a lot of its power to the executive branch and saying basically we've got a health care bill. By the way, you, you know, you, the bureaucrats, you go write it. So we're not really looking at the, the structure that we had when we found no, the yeah, country. No, yeah, because we don't have, we don't have <coughs> any institutional separation anymore. You're exactly right, Bill. The Congress has turned into what I call the invertebrate branch. Uh, it, has, <laughs> it has surrendered eagerly its powers to the executive. So we don't have separation like it used to. I mean, the bills, I'm working on some reforms to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. The Intelligence Committee's farm out the drafting to the intelligence community. So mm -hmm. the CIA and the NSA write the bill, and they come yeah. back in, and they change a semicolon, and that's the end of it. So that the Madisonian vision has been de facto destroyed by a lack of courage, by cowardice in Congress. They don't want to vote on anything significant. They worry about a primary challenge, and they want to flee from responsibility. But that can't be blamed on Madison. He couldn't change the DNA. He could build an institution, but if the occupants want to give away all the power, that's nothing uh, you can prevent. Let me, if I may make a comment. We actually still have the Constitution. It's been amended, but on the issues we're talking about, it has not been significantly amended since the Civil War Amendment. So there's an interplay here between human corruption and undermining the effectiveness of the institutions that still remain by refusing to live up to constitutional responsibility. And when Benjamin Franklin said, a republic, if you can keep it, he was anticipating exactly the forces which are leading us to risk losing it. And those forces are very powerful because America is a very rich country. We have become a very powerful country. And we have developed a mythology which is partially from the Old Testament. And John wrote a play about this, uh, where we have convinced ourselves that we are a redeemer nation inhabited by a chosen people who have license to go and remake the world in our image. And that, yes, we're going to make some mistakes, but people are lucky that we're out there doing our job. Um, John, John how, many, how, many, how many wars have we been in since the founding? Country? Oh, gosh, um, probably. It depends on how you count it, but hundreds. And hundreds. how many did Congress declare? Uh, only five. Five. So we've only had five uh, constitutional wars. And but the problem has really gotten, in the, it, we've had basically 
Phil was saying, we, we've had an Old Testament foreign policy of good guys and bad guys for five generations now since Wilson. Uh, and on the presidential wars, it's been, we're three generations into it. So these, these problems that we're talking about are not um, something that just happened uh, yesterday in our, in, or in our generation. They're, they've been building up over time. And both political parties are uh, part of the they're the part of the problem. They're both committed to um, an oversized executive and, and turning, as Bruce was saying, uh, the judiciary and the legislature into rubber stamps and ink blots. Yeah. And part of that comes from um, the very prescient understanding of President Eisenhower in his farewell address when he spoke about the undue influence, the military-industrial complex, I call it the military-industrial counterterrorism complex, and it's grown by leaps and bounds. The one thing they're expert at, they distribute the manufacturing of these weapons in the various districts where the chairmen sit, and they, when they go up to brief the member of Congress, the first thing the member looks like, hey, how many jobs in my district? They don't ask whether you need the weapons, why are you fighting mm -hmm. over there? That's the first and last question they ask. And they don't want to accept responsibility. They don't even want to know. Things are so bad, Bill. Uh, about 11 years ago, I sat down with Congressman Walter Jones, the Armed Services Committee of uh, and we're in, in the House of North Carolina. And, and, and so he drafted a bill. This is after the weapons, the WMD, the lies that were told about the purchase of uh, yellow cake in Niger and whatever. So a simple bill, it would make it a crime for a president with knowledge and intent and malice to make a material lie to Congress to get an authorization for war. <laughs> you, you, the fact that you'd have to have a bill speaks volumes. And when we had a hearing, the members, well, gee, Mr. Fine and Congress, we, 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 have, we don't want to vote on that. The president might not go to as many wars as they ought to go on. This is 11 years ago. They didn't want, they, they thought it would be all right for the president. No, what, what's the name of this bill? It's called the Executive Accountability Act of 2006. And it's still in the... No, in no, the, it, it, it's it, gone. the bill, if it right. isn't enacted after two years, it expires. Right, but that's just an example, I think, of, yeah. of the congressional yeah, yeah. craving. The situation that Bruce is describing, mm -hmm. I think, reflects something much deeper. One of the things that I have learned from these two gentlemen and from the committee itself is the importance of studying history and having a frank exchange of ideas among people of goodwill. Most Americans, unfortunately, are woefully ignorant of history, and we don't have the kind of discussion among citizens that we have yeah. that we need to have on a whole range of issues, none more important than the issues we're discussing here. And the, I mean, Sandra Day O'Connor and others are trying to revitalize the teaching of civics in high schools in the United States. I frankly don't believe that most high school students in this country know what the term citizen means. And they certainly don't know that the idea of citizenship reflects responsibility towards the republic of which you are a citizen and putting that responsibility ahead of your own narrow self-interest. This would be an alien idea to many Americans. It remains to a certain degree in the military because mm -hmm. it's part of the military ethos. But it needs to be revitalized throughout our society, and we need to begin to have a different kind of discussion. It's not a matter of what position you take. It's a matter of engaging with issues in a forthright, honest way and being will willing to put yourself well, at risk. Well, but that gets at the in-state point yeah. you were making about justice 
And I think one of the problems with that you're articulating about education is everything now is relativistic. Is whatever you feel yeah. is right is right for you, and whatever you feel is right for you. And so, therefore, we're not going to agree on what justice is because it means something different to everyone. I mean, right. I think that's a problem. Well, well, it is a huge problem, and that's. But one of the reasons why that's true is because they don't teach any standards for determining, you know, what justice is, which yeah. is what. Madison was preoccupied with, Aristotle's preoccupied with, Socrates preoccupied with that, justice, making certain that you don't prejudge things without having due process, treating everyone with dignity, not acting with ulterior motives, all those sorts of things. Now, it's true, there's only so much, you know, the words can be infinitely manipulated if you want to. You know, you can call Mephistopheles God and God Mephistopheles. You know, as Abraham Lincoln once said, well, how many legs does a dog have? You have his tail called the leg. He'd say he still has four because calling it the tail a leg doesn't make it so. Uh, and so the problem that you've identified here is there's total reluctance to make any judgment at all. You have to have some judgments. Otherwise, we wouldn't even punish murder unless we thought murder was bad. We wouldn't punish rape unless we thought rape was bad. So, and that's a problem that we have in our, the educational system. Um, and it's not only the, the, the idea of justice that's, in my judgment, has got to be uh, foremost. When Grover Cleveland's first inaugural, this is over a century ago, he, when he, he delivered an address and he said, you know, I take an oath to support the Constitution. But he said, you citizens, you really, it, the Constitution is yours, not mine. And it's your understanding of the Constitution that's going to leave its imprint upon what I can do and what the Congress can do on the country. And that's got to come back into force because the American people don't insist on enforcing the Constitution through the vote, through popular opinion. And you just get a government of wolves, right? You may have people of sheep get a government of wolves. It was true when Edward R. Murrow said it. It's true today. And that's what we don't teach. When's the last time we've heard an inaugural address telling the people the Constitution is yours, not mine? It's even worse than that. They have done polls recently on public awareness of the First Amendment. Over half of the people asked could only identify one of the five rights enshrined in the First Amendment. And that, that not very well. That was freedom of speech. There was no knowledge of freedom of assembly. There was no knowledge of freedom of the press. There was no knowledge of freedom of religion. There was no knowledge of freedom of association. And one of the difficulties here is that by not understanding the breadth of these rights enshrined in the First Amendment, people default to, gosh, I feel badly. This <laughs> position that you know X group is good and Y group is bad, right. that feels good because I'm a member of X group. Let's go for it. And when people get into mm -hmm. that frame of mind, when they don't understand the underpinnings of a Republican culture, we're in deep trouble. You meant, go ahead. Because we can't have any sort of an honest discussion that leads to recognition of diverse interests and political compromise. And I think we're pretty clear you use the word republic. This is not a Republican versus Democrat no, no, uh, no, no, uh, no. issue. This is something no. very different. This is, John, you want to weigh in on. Uh, well, uh, uh, <coughs> the 
what we have in, in the drama, in the play, is uh, uh, a dramatization of, of, of what we're talking about, which is a citizen identity. And, and, and to have a citizen identity, you basically uh, have to respect uh, the opinions of your fellow man. And the idea that somehow we should all be the, think the same things is, is, is just utter nonsense. I mean, I wouldn't want to live in a world where uh, everybody thought the same way. I mean, you, the, the only reason you have politics and markets is because there are differences in the way people see things. So we, at the committee, we, we basically have uh, people from right of center and left of center, and we get them together, and we break down. Uh, what is the composition, roughly, in terms of the committee? Who, who, how do people line up? Well, I think we have um, how many uh, member? We have people on the board, uh, a number who voted for Trump, a uh, number who voted for Hillary. Uh, we have uh, we don't have a consensus on anything other than Article One, Section Eight, Clause Eleven, which is the uh, uh, Declare War Clause, and okay. so that's what the play yeah. is yeah. about. Is 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 well, I, 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 I recommend that we do have a consensus on one thing, and I think generally we've adhered to. We are respectful of diverse opinion. Absolutely. Yeah. We do not get angry with each other. We do not, you know, walk out in a huff. We do not. We engage. Can, can I, can I recommend engage. you start creating uh, subchapters on college campuses? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That's one, a good idea. It's an idea which ought to, which ought to catch fire. I, I think <laughs> it's, it's important to understand you know, why the, the war power kind of is the cornerstone of the debate. And that's because it's like an infectious disease. The war power breeds the surveillance state. It, it, it creates a warfare state that goes into the surveillance state. Now the NSA, they spy on everything, moves, and the drones take pictures, and I'm sure down the road they will be at Big Brother that even George Orwell couldn't so, think of. So the end defines... The, uh, the, end, the end is so defined, justifies yeah. any means. And exactly, means because of the welfare here, state. Because if okay. you're at war, then and anything you can ration you, people, you can set goes. prices. Uh, yeah. you can, uh, you, and, and that's where we are. I mean, yeah. we, we have the, the NSA gathers so much information, and not only just on you. I mean, they gather information Everybody on what members knows. of Congress are saying, what lawyers tell clients, what doctors tell patients, what judges talk in their chambers. You know, and it doesn't do any good. They're collecting it for its own sake. So we, we breed a surveillance state, and then we breed a bailout state because the whole idea behind this war power that's got to be used everywhere is no-risk existence. Okay, no risk in war, no risk in business. You yeah. bail out everybody. The big banks get all this money, and then it breeds into the welfare state, and we become a very effete nation. Don't want to take... Everybody's got to be bailed out no matter what. Risk so we last... So, so why do we have these eggshell <coughs> students at college? They can't even deal, you know, with with an epithet, with a with an adjective they don't like. Could you imagine fighting at Valley Forge with soldiers who would be horrified and traumatized if they heard a word they didn't like? I mean, it is we'd all have we'd all have British accents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so I mean, and, and the whole First Amendment is about protecting the speech we hate. You don't need a First Amendment to protect the right. speech you love. Right. It's got to protect the speech you hate. You don't necessarily agree to it, but yeah, maybe they have something to offer. And that principle applies to all five of the freedoms in the yeah. First Amendment, including freedom of association. John and I have a special <laughs> reason for uh, feeling strongly about this issue of freedom of association. But it is, and it gets into this issue of removing statues and, I mean, People have to understand that many of the figures they're talking about are complex individuals 
who lived in a very different time than today and responded to very different circumstances than today. And there has to be a nuanced, in-depth understanding of history. It's fine to draw moral judgments, but it is not fine to engage in gestures when you don't even attempt to understand the issues that underlie the lives of the people. Well, that, that gets at our current, our current uh, passion for pulling down statues. And uh, tell, tell me about the characters of the founders and why they're misunderstood uh, when you look at them through today's lens and how they, how they saw, for example, slavery then. I mean, why is that, so, is that, you know, that's our original sin as a country. I mean, how do we, uh, how do we get past that? John? Well, I'll let you... No, I'm not sure that was maybe four or five questions. But, no, uh, <laughs> it, 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 it's a critical issue, and it, and of course the you know the the framers they understood uh, the the evil of, of slavery that and they didn't try to uh, ignore it. Um, one element was only to permit states to count slaves as three fifths of a person for purposes of getting representation in the house. It watered down a little bit of of the slave. Uh, 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 culture in, in the South. And, you know, I, I think the dilemma was captured uh, in Thomas Jefferson during his sunset years, and he said, I, I, I tremble when I reflect that God is just and God's justice cannot sleep forever. Uh, he did not, you know, emancipate his slaves. He probably had an affair with Sally Hemings. Uh, uh, but they, were, they struggled with it and clearly understood it was contrary to the doctrines that were in the Declaration of Independence. Now, what I think they thought, and Madison especially, and he did want to manumit all his slaves and told Dolly to do so, but she didn't obey him uh, strictly, what that over time, the Constitution only forbade two kinds of amendments. You couldn't destroy the equal representation of the states in the Senate, and you couldn't forbid the slave trade earlier than 1808. So what was anticipated is as the country expanded, once you had a majority or two-thirds of free states, then through constitutional legal means, mm -hmm. slavery could disappear. So they built in a mechanism. Now, you got to understand, if you're a slave and it takes long years, that's, that, no, that doesn't really help you. So they struggled with that. But it wasn't as though they were indifferent you know, to the problem of slavery, even if many of them didn't have the courage and say, I'm walking away. But many of them did emancipate their slaves as well. Yeah, this is a sensitive point. I, I am deeply sympathetic with African Americans generally and specifically ones who have suffered from discrimination. And they are not only entitled to speak out, but they should speak out. And they should be listened to. And change should be made. And change has been made, but more changes are needed. But all of us have to somehow find a way of dealing with these very difficult questions of injustice at a real human level and not default to symbolism, and particularly not to default to symbolism when it is symbolism that cuts off engagement and discussion. This is a very hard point. Um, I know it's a point that Martin, Symbolism as in statues or symbolism? Sometimes as yeah, in okay. statues. And all cases are not the same. Um, but these aren't really, this isn't the subject of, of, of our play. No, it's not I, the subject I, I, of the play, I, I, but it's... Our play is focused on the war power uh, and, and, 
and what we need to do about it. Yeah, let's circle back to the play. We've got a few minutes remaining because it's uh, we we've missed a lot of things I want to cover. The play is has three plays within a play. Right. And we have William the Conqueror, right, who created the English warfare state, right, and which is by the way one of my lines. Thank you, John, for that. <laughs> uh, we have Edward the Third, right, and we had Henry the Eighth or Henry the Fifth. Henry the Fifth, yeah. And Henry the Fifth was was I guess he was Agincourt. Uh, uh, Agincourt was uh, Henry, uh, Edward the Third. Crazy was was Edward the Third, yeah. and then sixty-seven years later, the same crossbow. Uh, uh, battle plan was was reenacted at, at Agincourt, and these English monarchs vivify. What oh, these we must guys! Avoid. These what they didn't do just do regime change. <laughs> they were going after whole countries. I mean, they, they were they were they were take, they were taking whole countries. And not, we also not, talk about how futile it was. France would invade England. England would invade France. They went back and the forth. The borders for, were going back and forth yeah. in France the way they are in uh, Syria and Iraq now for four hundred years. And and the founders looked at these three strong uh, warrior kings in English history and said, you know, we don't want to go down that road. We, we don't want uh, a warfare state. Yeah. We want a republic. And so in order to have a republic rather than an empire, we're, we have to do something that hasn't been done because we've had, we have today, we've had 67 empires in the last 3,000 years. At that time, uh, they they didn't have as many at the, the, the count, but uh, they knew enough to know that basically, if you wanted to be a republic rather than empire, the the most important thing you had to do was to put the war power in uh, in the Congress. And and, and and we're using our play the way the Greeks used plays, and the yeah, Greeks exactly. had a view that play. This we talked about education. Uh, you know, the Greeks used plays to, uh, for instruction, as we talk about for instruction. Not just, just Right. And entertainment, but instruction primarily in civic virtues and how to be and how they to use be a citizen. citizen actors to do it. Those are the yeah. two big ideas that uh, it, you know. Rick Davis, who uh, is our director, who uh, heads the performing arts. He's a, he's arts a big at, deal director. He oh runs my God. George he's, Mason. Uh, he runs the whole yeah. performing arts. And, citizen and actors and citizen playwrights. The right. Athenian tragedies were written by citizens who engaged in competitions, and they were meant to be performed for one festival of Dionysus. So it was, it was citizens through and through, and there was active audience participation. We should create this same culture of involvement. Right, so our cast is all country. citizen actors, and we have people uh, uh, like three of you who are, uh, uh, are, are, are amateurs, we're, not we're, professionals, we're, but we're you are, it, you're, very, you're very serious about <laughs> acting. When we started, we, um, as we were saying earlier, uh, the citizen identity requires that you engage with your fellow citizens. As we were saying, uh, 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 political segregation has replaced racial segregation in this country. And so what we need to do is talk to each other and talk about what the two political parties are taking off the table, uh, which Bruce and Bill have alluded to, the warfare state, the too big to fail, fail at state, uh, the people that control the money and the violence. So what, we, what we've done in this play is uh, dramatize how the founders came to the decision to uh, put the war power. Uh, it never been done before since in history. And uh, to make it uh, Bruce's point uh, when he said that uh, it's, it's institutions that are important rather than personalities. So how do you convey in a play this very abstract idea of institutions having personalities? And what we do is we, re, we have the line that uh, the executive is like a, 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 pit, bull. a pit bull, pit bull. <laughs> and the uh, legislature is like a Labrador retriever. Yeah. <laughs> and that, uh, 
that makes it uh, yeah. approachable. I want to pay John an additional compliment because he's taken on the gender issue in a very interesting way in this play. And Joan of Arc is normally considered a great spiritual heroine who taught the English an important lesson. But in John's play, she's as deluded as the kings <laughs> that she replaces. Because, she, because she, although she, France regains its territorial integrity, she is deluded with this idea of being God's warrior. And of course, nobody is God's warrior. She's promoting the French warfare state right. rather than the British warfare state. Right. Yeah. And so we have, so John puts in Joan of Arc with a lot of encouragement from other participants. Uh, not Joan of Arc, the Virgin Mary. Yeah. And the poor Virgin Mary, who has the voice of love and virtue in the play, is overwhelmed. Well, but as, 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 as we as, actually as, have that line, we have as, uh, as, as, William as, the Conqueror's <laughs> wife looks at her and says, Why are you uh, saying uh, all these things? Nobody ever listens to you. Well, that's true, but we also have her say, Joan or uh, Virgin, you may, you may, you may be uh, played your role, but but I talk to God, <laughs> right. and Joan claims as her uh, because right. she has voices, she's she's, uh, she, she's in charge, even, even though she's uh, Catholic and uh, not uh, hasn't disintermediated, uh, she she talks directly to God. Let's, we need to wrap up. I hate to hate to do that because we've got such an interesting conversation going. John, the play is November seventh. Yep. At the, We're in the U.S. Capitol in the visitor center. It's a great. That's privilege. pretty unusual, isn't it? How, how did we get into the Capitol? Well, uh, we had center? to have legislation, <laughs> uh, and so, yeah. so uh, we have a, <laughs> Walter Jones has put in uh, the committee's uh, resolution uh, defining a presidential war uh, as an impeachable offense as a. But the first time in 227 years that that's been done. So we're laying down the um, laying the standard down. Okay, and because of that, we'll be we're going to be in the Capitol visitors uh, November 7th. Uh, we're going to have a very heated, a very good discussion uh, yeah. uh, when we give him the award, and then we're going to after the play, we're going to have a discussion about this. Now I assume, the, even though we're citizen actors, you're going to make us rehearse between now and then. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes. Well, this is a great thing. Our citizen actors can't get enough rehearsals. So. Oh, no, that's true. <laughs> Well, thank you, guys. It's been a great show. I'm glad to have you on, and we Good. learned a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Looking forward to the, next, uh, the next yeah. version. Okay, thanks. Onward, Albert. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe to Common Ground with Bill Walton on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites, and Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to Amazon.com slash apply. That's Amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.